The first time I drove a proper simulator, I was white like a ghost. Like, I can't go on roller coasters. I say I can't. I haven't been on one in many, many years because the last time I, I would go on one, I would get quite sick. So I could try and form the one racing car around the track, but not, don't go on a roller coaster or, or I'm going to throw up. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is a man who's just driven the race of his life. He ran in a very assured third place for the early part of the Hungarian Grand Prix before coming home in seventh place to take his first points in Formula One. The man I'm talking about is, of course, Williams driver Nicholas Latifi. Best ever Grand Prix finish for Nicholas Latifi. Points for the Williams team as well. What a week to have Nicky on the show, although I did the interview before Sunday's race. So we didn't get to talk about his giant killing performance. So let me remind you, Nicky dodged the turn one carnage at the Hungaro ring to emerge in third place, where he stayed until his pit stop on lap 23, all the while looking assured and confident despite having faster cars all around him. It was a breakthrough moment for the 26-year-old Canadian, and it couldn't have come at a better time as Williams set about deciding on their 2022 driver lineup. But even without that performance in Hungary, Nicky's story is an intriguing one. He didn't grow up in a racing family and how he got started in motorsport is a great listen. And of course, once he got started, he then made the move to Europe with all of the anguish and sacrifice that comes with living in a different continent to your family and friends when you're just a teenager. He reveals all in this chat while also shedding light on his approach to racing against the big guns in Formula One and how he tries to get the best from Williams and how he goes about trying to beat his highly rated teammate, George Russell. I've always found Nicky to be an engaging and interesting character and he lives up to that billing here. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nicholas, it's fab to have you on the show. And it's the summer break. Are you as pleased as I am to be on the summer break? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely nice. I mean, it's you know only 10 races, 11 races in, however however many it is we've done before the break now. And it's gone by pretty quickly, it, it feels like. But yeah, it's nice to uh, now have some time to just kind of relax, switch off a bit from racing and uh, reflect a bit on the first few races. I mean, being serious, do you wish you could keep racing or are you actually quite welcoming the break? No, I, I definitely welcome the break. I mean, I, I guess it kind of depends on what f- phase you're at in the season in terms of, you know, if you're on a, a run of some hot performances, if you're on a kind of a up and down yo-yoing and, and, and whatnot. I mean, me personally, I think it has been very up and down. So I think just having a, a bit of the time to just reflect on, on everything is nice as well i mean we had the one triple header which was a little bit tiring obviously more so for the for the other team members yeah some some tricky races as i said so i, I think just being able to s- switch off a bit uh take some time to go on a little holiday well on the subject of holidays what is the best form of relaxation what goes on how do you relax um nutella just there's definitely going to be some nutella in there i won't lie i'm a big fan of nutella in the mornings especially with breakfast foods <laughs> whether it's uh pancakes crepes waffles 
maybe even French toast. Just got to see where I'm going to be able to get. I think they're going to have to make the seat a bit bigger when yeah. you get to Belgium. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's the first thing my engineer will uh, call me up on. If you know, just about weight, because it obviously is always a thing with tall drivers. I had a very funny dream. I told my engineer the other day, and. Um, Again, I'm a taller guy. I'm not. I'm. How tall are you? I'm uh, 186, a yeah. bit just over 186. So, anyways, I'm under the weight limit, but because I'm tall, I have to keep an eye on on myself for the weight limit. And my engineer, naturally being an engineer, he's always wants to fight for those you know last hundreds. And they could tell you, you know, if I was 200 grams heavier than I should have been over the race distance, it will cost me X amount of time that weekend. So I had I had a dream the other the other week, and uh, I told them when I was at the sim day the last sim day we were at, I was at the simulator session in the dream. And the engineer comes in and he starts giving me a bit of uh, shit. Can I say shit on this podcast? Just have. <laughs> he starts giving me a bit of shit because he says I'm too light. <laughs> he says you're under the weight limit. It's, it's affecting the weight distribution of the car. I said, okay, this is a great problem to have. It's, uh, Result. It's a, yeah. yeah. It's quite a nice dream actually telling yeah. me I'm too light. But it never yeah. actually happened. Yeah, no, it never, it never <laughs> happened. Uh, I mean, there's actually been a few times this year when I've been, uh, I've been told, oh, you could eat a bit more. But um, yeah, no, I, I'm, hey, I'm scarred a bit from last year. If you don't want to give any numbers out, but I'm quite interested to know, what is your fighting weight? So basically with all of my kit, because that's the weight we go off of, my kit, probably, you know, shoes, boots, helmet, Hans, everything like that, probably weighs about anywhere between four and a half to 4.8 kilos. Obviously, the taller you are, the heavier your, your kit should weigh because you have bigger shoes, bigger suit, more material, maybe a bigger head. I don't know. It's <laughs> a bigger helmet. It just depends. So my r- race weight, let's say, pre-qualifying, I try and target 77.5 kilos. So that's me around high 72, low, like 73, zero. That's not much body maximum. fat. That's not much body fat, so That's, that's not know, much Nutella, no. let's face it. And that's obviously, you know, being you know hydrated, not a full stomach because you know you don't want to race on a full stomach. But you, you you've eaten. It's not like a morning weight, like a morning weight when you're kind of like, you know, a bit of dehydrated. And I stuff. always weigh myself in the morning. Don't you? Yeah. yeah, that's the most consistent time to do it. Wake up. That's not the washroom. Weigh yourself, and that's as consistent as uh, as you'll get. Yeah. Right now, what about other sports during the break? I mean, you're a basketball fan. Do you still play? Um, unfortunately, I haven't uh, played in a little while. Um, just where I live right now, there's, at least to my knowledge, there's not really many areas to go shoot some hoops. And unfortunately, I don't really watch. Uh, well, I haven't really been able to watch a lot of it this year either. I mean, it's it's done now. It finished uh, last last week, I believe. But yeah, just being on the time difference. I mean, I like I like to watch them live the games. I don't really like to catch up on the games and then obviously to watch them. The next day, when you kind of know the results, what is it? It's the Toronto know. Raptors. Is yeah, that I mean, the Toronto yeah. Raptors are, are the the home my home team. Uh, we didn't do very good this year, quite bad actually. Unfortunately, we don't think we didn't qualify for the, the for the playoffs. So it was an early end to the season. But just in general, I mean, even you know, not not watching my team, I still enjoy watching it. But uh, yeah, I just missed missed out on it. So yeah, I do like to play basketball, but. Uh, Tall racing driver, but short basketball player. <laughs> I would have been. And yeah, even tennis, uh, I enjoy quite a lot. I mean, like to, to play, it's a fun, fun thing to play. Have you taken up any other hobbies? Because we had Charles Leclerc on the podcast the other week, and he was telling us he's a mad keen chess player. He started playing paddle again. Have you played paddle? Uh, no, I've. As I'm far not, as I, I can I've make out, it's it. the easy form of tennis, as yeah. far as I can make out. <laughs> well, if it's what I'm thinking of. It, it's, it looks like a form of tennis that doesn't require as much finesse. Exactly. <laughs> it's almost like s- squash. Yeah, I, de- I definitely need to play. But do you um, um, have you taken up anything? Do you? What do you? 
Um, do you, do you I and mean, George the, play anything together? Bit of chess, no, I mean, to be honest, things like that, not really. I mean, yeah, Charles is, is uh, chess. George, I know he likes he likes a bit of backgammon. <laughs> That's his guilty pleasure. But no, I mean, me, I, I don't really have anything uh, in particular, any side hobbies, things like that. Are you going to do any karting? Do you keep do you kart to keep yourself yeah, sharp? Uh, yeah, every now and then I, I, I kind of try and fit in a day of karting. I still have a shifter cart or gearbox cart, however you refer to them. In the UK? With uh, you? In the UK, yeah. It, it was my cart basically from when I still was racing so i've had it for quite a long time and yeah every now and then i, I try and throw in a, a, a day at uh, sometimes wilton mill sometimes rye house rye house definitely a bit more of a mickey mouse track for a shifter cart <laughs> now here's the thing a lot of people say to me do you kart and i occasionally do a bit of in- indoor karting and they said do you talk to the formula one drivers about how similar karting is to driving a formula one car right obviously massive difference but are there any parallels yeah i mean there's definitely parallels i mean i think specifically with a, a shifter car so, so a gearbox car i think it is really one of the th- probably the closest thing to an f1 car in terms of like power to weight ratio more so than formula 2 I, I would say so i don't know the actual numbers by heart but i, I would i would think so i mean that's uh, before being a formula 1 that's what i was always told it's the closest thing power to weight <laughs> ratio than a, <laughs> to a formula 1 car but yeah i mean obviously it's very physical as well. You know, karting and formula cars is a completely different kind of physicality. I mean, karting, you, you get beat up much more. It's like, especially if it's a bumpy track, having to use a gearbox cart, you know, what, driving with one hand a lot of the time on, on the wheel, and you just really get, like, bruised and battered. Whereas, when you drive formula cars, whether it's, you know, Formula 2 or an LMP car or Formula 1, it's much more, it kind of much, like, wears you down much more because it's, you know, very progressive, but prolonged G's, let's say. So not as bumpy, smoother ride. You got a seat that's molded to your body, so it's a bit more comfortable as well. But it just kind of wears you down from like the the time on it's like a time under tension type thing. Yeah, it's interesting. So a bit of that before Belgium, maybe. Uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to get back driving something uh, before Belgium. Every time after the summer break, it always feels so weird when you jump back in the car. It's almost like when you jump in after the winter break. Is it that first time you sit in the car in the first lap? It just feels a bit like. Oh, it's been a while. But also, it's spa, isn't it? Yeah. It's not a half-hearted place, is it? It's, no, yeah, definitely. Uh, very high speed. Yeah. Uh, flat through Eau Rouge. Flat through Got yeah. to be done on the first lap. It has to be done. <laughs> That's always a little competition we had in junior categories. First lap, flat out. <laughs> now, look. I, I saw a picture before the Hungarian Grand Prix of you on a... I think it was a tank. It looks like a tank. It wasn't quite a tank. It was basically like like a, a heavy ar- artillery gun. What's going on there? So, my um, trainer that works with me this year... He's a former um, Royal Marine commando, military background, obviously, and um, he was... He sounds a no-nonsense kind of guy. Yeah, (laughs) he was quite keen, uh, just, you know, a day uh, outside of our actual training, go to a military base or or, or something just to kind of speak with, you know, some of the troops, and it's something completely separate from Williams. Uh, It wasn't a media day or anything like that. I mean, there was not really any media there. It was just to, you know, speak to some of the the, the young recruits, a lot of them younger than me, which made me feel very old considering I'm only 26, you know, get their experiences working in the military. Obviously, a lot of parallels between military and Formula One. Are they? Like, Are they? I mean, yeah, I mean, what kind of parallel? Not, not obviously in terms of the, the, <laughs> the practical aspects, like the actual execution of what we're doing. But, you know, communication is a, is a huge thing in, in military, uh, as it is in Formula One. Absolutely critical. And not only what's being said, but how it's being said, the efficiency of it. Did you learn anything when it came to communication? Um, 
I mean, there specifically, I mean, I'd heard stuff like that before because, you know, I think within Williams, we've done some communication courses where we've had this ex-RAF pilot come to speak to all of us. And it was, again, not this branch that I was visiting now, but it's still military. And yeah, you definitely learn some things and, you know, the importance of concise and clear information and also specific words that you use. Because, you know, for anyone who listens to Formula One races or driver radios, you'll sometimes hear engineers or, or drivers say, you know, you kind of speak a bit robotic, like, you know, you'll say copy a lot more, or sometimes instead of saying, like, to, to confirm something, someone will say affirm. And, and the reason why I use these specific words is because they're much clearer to understand on the radio, and they leave much less to, to guessing. It's like, did he say yes? Did he say no? Did he get my message? <laughs> Nicholas, I've got to interrupt you, because while we're talking about radio communications, I can't stop thinking about Baku. <laughs> <laughs> Stay out, stay out, stay out, stay out, stay out, stay out. Yep. Through the pit lane, but no pit stop. Huh? Through the pit lane, but no pit stop. Ah, you, you told me to stay out. Uh, stay out means stay on the track. Sorry, sorry. So Baku, yeah. Yeah, damn um, it. If only you'd had this trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was uh, that was obviously a, a frustrating one. But it was not so much losing the 13th place. It was more the penalty points that I, that I, got, that I still have, which was you know, pretty much the harshest application of penalty points you could get three straight away bam right on the license you said um, that at the time I so uh yeah i mean i was told to box earlier in the lap just to change the tires and then just kind of committing to the pit entry and then before the pit entry i hear the words stay out stay out which beyond my engineer speaking to me you know there's a lot of communication that takes place behind that doesn't get broadcasted you know between tire guy strategist team management and 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 stuff like that and yeah there was a miscommunication in terms of all the stuff in the background that the message that got relayed to me was stay out which as a driver when you hear that it means don't pit stay out so we've addressed it to make sure something like that doesn't happen again but very annoying that for what was you know ultimately it it was a team mistake uh, Mm. and team mistakes happen but (laughs) I don't mean to drag this all up it just did remind me as we're talking about radio yeah three three penalty points what else from the from the military from the guys what was it It was the royal artillery wasn't it yeah exactly yeah so yeah, I got to ride around in one of their heavy artillery guns. I got to sledgehammer out a few of the, the tracks. Cause basically, the, the tracks of it is like a tank, you know, like a conveyor belt type thing. So I got to change a track. And then I also got to go did down. You drive it? Uh, I didn't drive it personally. Someone else drove it. I did sit in the driver's seat and I got to rev the engine, <laughs> which I looked like a kid doing it. Uh, I mean, I was quite gentle on it initially because I was like, you know, normally my experience when you you know, jumping something to rev the engine, you know, it has to like warm up a little bit, right? You don't just want to go like flat out first. It's bad for the engine. Then they were like, no, 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 flat out, flat out. <laughs> and I just was flat out for like 10 seconds. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Keep going, keep going. Was the camaraderie among the guys there similar to a race team? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I went to two different departments mainly. So um, the first place I was where it was basically where the tank looking thing was. And yeah, there was a bunch of guys who were kind of doing maintenance on on a lot of the machines there. And you kind of seeing all them working together to do that. And then the second part, which was a cool part, was um, going to see kind of like their Overwatch center. So like uh, it's where like they had like a UAV there. I got to see and like they where they trained the pilots to pilot the UAVs. So I saw the simulator there. Very different than our simulator, but still very similar uh, <laughs> goal for for it. And uh, yeah, so I got to see the whole unit there and, and kind of how they work, how they operate. So yeah, it's a, a lot of moving parts and pieces. A lot of people having their own 
very specific job and that's what they have to do but i mean it's kind of like a formula one as well you have one guy who's just for one part of the car one engineer who's just for the electronics or one engineer who's just for this but everything comes together obviously to make you know a nice working uh machine here nick let's talk now about 2021 because it seems to me you've taken a huge step forward compared to last year particularly over one lap is that how you see it yeah, I, I definitely feel I've I've made some big improvements in that area. It was, you know, for sure my biggest focus coming into this year to kind of close that gap down to my teammate in qualifying. Obviously, I have a very good reference to, you know, to see what is possible with with the current car I have, and ultimately that's what you always want to do is try and get the maximum out of it over over the one lap. And you know, the way I, I kind of explain it is. Now, if you just look at it on paper, it maybe doesn't look like it's been such a big step because if you just look at the disparity and you know qualifying positions itself, uh, you've halved the gap. To yeah, oh, is, that, is that the actual yeah. number? Oh, okay. So I, I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't obviously track the numbers throughout. I just obviously kind of see. I mean, it fluctuates from race to race, but yeah. basically, it's yeah. you've halved it. That's no, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel much more comfortable in the car. I mean, it's still no doubt a tricky car to drive in many situations, and, and ultimately, I feel I'm doing a better job of driving around some of it. I still feel I need to be doing a better job in certain situations of driving around some of the issues, both qualifying and race. But, you know, now that the car is, you know, consistently can be in Q2, no question. Last year it was a bit more challenging. You really had to nail a perfect lap, and you still do have to nail a very good lap. But last year the difference between being half a second quicker in reality sometimes we don't even give you an extra position in qualifying we'd still be towards the tail end this year sometimes an extra half a tenth or tenth is the difference between making it to q2 or not and then q2 everything is much closer you know you can build the rhythm you can improve a bit more get more confidence with the car and we've seen the car has potential to be in in q3 this year and does that change your whole approach to the weekend knowing that you can be in the money i wouldn't really say it changes the whole approach to the weekend it could change the, the strategy at certain points. I mean, I, I think ultimately what will still dictate the approach is, you know, for example, a track like Monaco or a track like here, you know, qualifying is is key because it's difficult to overtake. So you do f- focus everything around the the qualifying itself and less focus on the race. You know, if there's tracks where it's very easy to overtake, like let me say Baku, for example, you might want to make sure you have a very strong car on the race, something that you're confident with, something that's good under braking, that's very important in Baku. So. I would say the the only implication knowing a car that could get into Q2, let's say, if you have one that could get into Q2, is depending on how you use your tires in practice and in qualifying. Because sometimes, if you know there's almost no chance to get into Q2, you just use as many qualifying tires as you can in Q1. Sometimes we would run three sets in Q1. And if you get to Q2, then you don't really have any tires to run, but you're still P15. Whereas now, you know, realistically, we, sh- we, sh- we can be in Q2 every race. So if you're better to, you know, save a set of tires for Q2 just in case you make it there. But if you don't make it there, then you have a tire that you won't ever use in the weekend and you're kind of giving back a brand new tire, which is not as nice either. So Yeah, crikey. There's a lot, lot, lot of juggling yeah. to do. You're now 28 races into your career. How much more confident... I thought you were going to say you're now 28 years old. I was going to be like, oh, I'm not <laughs> no, there No, no, I'm 26. <laughs> I knew that. But 28 races in, how much more confident are you than when you turned up well, in Melbourne, actually, at the start of last year, and of course, pre-pandemic, that was. But um, yeah, I mean, how have you changed? For sure, the confidence is is much higher. I mean, coming into the first race last year, which let's say at the time was Melbourne, because that's when the first race was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, naturally, you you don't know what to expect, really. I mean, you've driven the car in, in testing. 
uh, well, first I've driven with the team in postseason testing, then I've driven the car in preseason testing. For sure, you feel it's it's still going to you know it's going to be a challenge. You're prepared. It's going to be a challenge, but you don't really know what to expect until you get going. Obviously, COVID happened. Season got put on hold. Fast forward a few months into Austria, and then the first few races, and you know. As much as each race goes by, you start to you know gain more confidence naturally. It's still, you know, I, I was funny. It was a very difficult car to drive, and still, still like, like I said, in many situations, is a difficult car to drive. But I feel this year, especially like already from the first race, just feel so much more equipped, just from a, a driving point of view, to to deal with those difficulties. I mean, there's so many races this year, and you know, practice sessions or qualifying. So that I said, you know, if the car was like this last year. I wouldn't have been able to drive it. I would have, well, obviously, would have driven it, but it would have been, you know, I would have been locking up, spinning out, snaps of oversteer, or, you know, race pace would have been much poorer than it was. So when you notice that improvement as a driver, that you know, like, okay, if this was last year, there's no way I would have coped with it as well. It's obviously very satisfying because, you know, obviously you can't really compare year on year. The lap times, conditions might be different. But, you know, internally as a driver, you know how comfortable you are driving driving a car in a specific moment if it's not handling the way you want if it's not giving you confidence i mean confidence in formula one behind the wheel is is everything because these cars are you know they're so fast you have to be so on the limit and when you're on that limit it's like a knife edge if you go too far and really get bit but if you don't get to that limit and you're on the other side of it you're you're giving up lap time (laughs) and no one wants to do that how much more is there to come do you feel i definitely think there's still a lot to come for sure i mean I think naturally, probably from you know the first year to the second year, there will always be a big improvement. I think you know when you when you don't have any experience, <laughs> that the, the rate of improvement will always be big. But I, I do feel that once you kind of get over that, let's say initial hump of no experience, and you start to get settled into a bit more rhythm and more comfortable, you're then also able to you know, analyze things much better and kind of start to understand more what you know the steps you need to take to keep improving and that's kind of where i feel i kind of am now you know i'm comfortable i'm much more comfortable with the car i could still be improved i could still be doing a better job but i feel i'm at a point now where you know i could just take a step back and analyze much more okay now now where can i keep improving and i know where i where i need to keep improving it's been highlighted to me in the past races and then you know obviously when you know there's still tons of room for improvement you could take it two ways you could say oh that's not good because it means you're not optimizing what you can right now but i see well it's good because i see i'm improving the potential is, is getting better and i still see this room to keep to keep improving so if i can get the chase those steps and get that extra improvement then i think the performance will be where i where i want it to be let's talk williams how different is the team now to the one that you first joined back in 2019 yeah it's it's quite a lot that has changed to say the least yeah, I mean now, I think you know the team is definitely has has the foundations to, you know, to be the makings of a top teams in 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 a few years. I mean, hopefully, less less years than more. Yeah, I mean when I joined the team, obviously, team was in a, a very difficult place uh, financially, as it was for for a few years. You know, performance wise, they were struggling quite a bit. You know, coming off the back of a, of a very very difficult season in 2019. And uh, yeah, then COVID hit and kind of really just, I guess, was the the final nail in the coffin for things, which was, you know, for sure, very unfortunate you know, for the Williams family. They have su- had built such a legacy in the sport, such history, you know, synonymous with the Formula One name. And uh, yeah, so it was very, very sad to, you know, have that chapter 
of, of Williams come to an end. You know, at the same time, I think it's very brave what, uh, what Claire did in kind of putting the team and all the employees first and, you know, making the decision to ultimately step aside and, and, and let someone else take over. And now, since, since the new owners, I mean, from, from the first few races last year under new ownership, you know, a bit of a morale boost because, you know, the team's future was solidified you know the, the stability of all the employees and and their futures is obviously st- solidified which is which was great and just now making the steps you know we have uh, you know getting the proper management structure in place we've had Yost come in uh, we have a, a we've had a technical director come in and really just you know proper chain of command everyone knows what they're doing and just you know the foundations that are needed to properly get the team out of the rut it was in and slowly but surely try and build it back up so it's an exciting time. I, I mean, I really believe in what's been done right now, or all the changes that are, that have been happening, and I have no doubt that in a few years' time they will be competitive. And you know what that competitiveness is is obviously always difficult to say, but I have no doubt they will be fighting for <laughs> fighting for much more than we are now. <laughs> what kind of a boss is Yost? Yost Capito. Yeah. About. yeah, I mean, Yost is a great boss. I think one of the things I like about Yost is he's very human. And obviously, he's a human. But what I mean by that is, you know, he's very approachable. I mean, he's the boss of a big company, a lot of employees. But, you know, when you talk to him, you know, you don't feel like he's, he's the boss. You know, he's, he's very approachable, very sh- straightforward. You know, he'll, he'll tell you how it is, uh, straight to the point. But he's a very friendly guy you could joke around with. And, and I think that is great as well in, in a big team, and especially a team like Formula One, where, you know, you're, you're only as good as, you know, all, all your team members that, that support and make up the team. You know, ha- having someone like Yost that anyone, whether it's, you know, the, the tire mechanic, the, the guy who's in charge of the fuel, or to people, you know, that are a bit more higher up, technical directors, whatever, everyone feels that they could just go to him. And if they have... A, you know, a problem. Let's say they you don't have to feel shy or a bit uneasy about. Oh, okay, I don't want to bring this problem to the boss or whatever like that. He just kind of has like a bit of a open door policy, if you will. And do you feel that Yost treats you identically to George George Russell? Uh, I mean, in, I don't feel there's a number one and number two driver in the team. If if uh, that's a, a simpler way to, <laughs> to to say it. I don't just mean in terms of number one and number two, just in terms of your relationship with him. I mean, do you feel it is as good as George's? Um, well, I don't know how good a relationship George has with Yost, so uh, it's a bit difficult. Fair point. To, uh, Fair point. Yeah, I guess it's a bit difficult to say. I mean, I guess I can only comment on um, on my relationship with Yost, which is which is good. It'd probably be better if I was driving the car a bit faster. <laughs> which I it's guess very not. complimentary about you, actually, and the improvements that yeah. <laughs> he's seen in you. Yeah, I, I mean, from my side, obviously, you you know, you always want to drive as fast as you can, and you know, the faster you drive, the the happier your yeah. your your bosses naturally. Is he are, very so. performance driven? In that, does he set you goals? So, I want you to be at this point by this stage in the season, in terms of maybe whether it's the the gap to, to George or, or in terms of championship finishing positions? In, in that respect, no, not hard goals. I mean, I think, you know, the, the expectation of of me and my job is clear is, you know, you, you need to be, you always want to be as close to your teammate as possible. You know, as a as a team, you want two drivers who are, who are pushing each other and, and pushing the team forward. So naturally that means, you know, I need to be getting more out of the car because it's clear on the other side of the garage, George is consistently able to do it more. So, from that side, I mean, I don't need to be told, 
you you need to be matching this or being within X amount and qualifying or whatnot because I mean that just kind of is is a given if you will. But uh, but yeah, no, we, we we have a great relationship and uh, enjoy driving for him. <laughs> and when you look at the data, just while we're talking about George, where is he finding the time over you in quali? Because there's not much between you in the races, but in over one lap in quali, where is that gap still? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things George is, is really good at in qualifying specifically is kind of building up the pace lap by lap, finding the time without over pushing, let's say. Because I think, you know, one of the, I'm not saying it's a mistake that I consistently make. I mean, I've been guilty of, of making it before. And I think a lot of people, when they first start out or when they jump to new categories, are guilty of making it. And that's when, when it comes time to qualifying and you put the new tires on, naturally you push harder because you know the car is lighter it's probably handling the best it's felt in f1 you have more engine power because you know you turn the engine up for quality but it's very easy to over push because you know it's like qualifying i gotta push hard but sometimes pushing harder is not necessarily the way to find the lap time and george seems to be very good at finding that right balance of you know consistently improving lap by lap you know we've seen it many many times that in q1 the margins are so close and he'll you know he's consistently in q2 but sometimes he's not making that threshold by a lot it's still very close with all 20 cars on track but then come q2 he's able to keep finding you know keep improving keep improving and obviously you know two races those improvements have put him into q3 which is quite remarkable so i think building the qualifying session you know which starts arguably from the end of fb3 into qualifying is something he's, he's very very strong at then i think w- with me in particular because I wouldn't really say it's there's like a specific trend of driving. Like he's always, for example, he's always braking later, or he's always carrying more minimum speed, or he's always getting better exits. I think it's just the consistency of how he builds each lap. Where sometimes me, I could do a great first lap, and I could be very close, or sometimes faster on a first lap. But then I don't improve as much as I need to on the, the next lap, which I'll still improve, but just not finding as as much time. So I, I think that's. Um, God, it's the fine margins, yeah. isn't it? Fine, fine I'm getting, margins. I'm, I'm getting frustrated just listening to you. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Is he the best teammate you've ever had? And you've had some really good ones. What, yes. Esteban Ocon in the junior formulas, Alex Albon? Yeah, I, I would I would definitely say say so. I mean, I think it, it's a bit tricky because, yes, like, like I said, I, I've had some really, really strong teammates, a lot of which are have been in Formula One or currently are in Formula One. So I've got to experience driving against people with different driving styles, different strengths, different weaknesses. I think naturally, though, I kind of, you know, more in my, the latter years of my junior career, I think is like the kind of fair benchmark to kind of say, okay, how strong were certain teammates? Because naturally, I feel a better driver than I was, let's say, when I was in Formula 3 in 2014, teammates with Esteban, for, for me, yeah, he was still, uh, you know, he's, a, he's an amazing driver, very, very strong driver. <laughs> I remember, we drove, we drove in completely different ways, different driving styles, which is why I think I, I struggled so much against them. But I, let's say I feel if I was to go back into, into Formula 3 now, I'm like, obviously a better driver, just as I'm sure he is <laughs> all these years down the line. But speaking, you know, now, obviously Formula 1, driving against a guy like George when, yes, there's still areas I, I know I need to improve on, as I'm sure there's areas he feels he needs to improve on. I'm, I'm assuming maybe he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely say he's he's probably one of the strongest, if not the strongest, especially over qualifying. You know, I've driven against drivers who have said, oh, this, you know, at the time, this is the best guy in, in this area I've driven with. This is the best guy in this area I've driven with. Sometimes qualifying, sometimes the race, sometimes just the general all-arounder, let's say, but, you know, specifically in qualifying, I think yeah, George is by far 
the best, but then even in the race, he's 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 very strong as well. Normally, sometimes you have it's a bit of one one or the other. One might be very very strong in qualifying, and one might be stronger in the race. One might be a bit of a average in both of them, but that average is still very good. But it's just all, all around, he seems to just nail nail it. So uh, it's a great reference for me. <laughs> it's a great reference uh, for everybody. I yeah. think all his teammates. It's going to be the same, isn't it? Yeah. While we're talking junior formulas or mentioning them can i ask you two questions one is you did four seasons in what was it gp2 f2 for the same team now i'm imagining i'm your manager for a second and i'm thinking why am i keeping you at the same team for four years what was the thinking behind that i'm genuinely fascinated to know why you didn't maybe try and switch to to primer in f2 or yeah, so uh, it's a good question because it definitely was... I mean, Dams is a great team. That's yeah. not a slight on Dams, but it, I'm just interested yeah. that you no, spent the whole time there. And I mean, to be honest, it after the first year, it was a question mark, and, and they they kind of knew it was a question mark as well. I think, yeah, I mean, at the time that I went in, into Formula 2, Dams was one of the top teams. I think they were in the top three or top five teams. And then the first year I was with them, and that was the year I was teammates with Alex Lynn in, in 2016, and then... It was a very, very difficult year. For, for whatever reason, it just seems like the, the team had taken a step backwards. And okay, I was for sure not the benchmark driver in his first year, but I know, I know Alex was you know, one of the championship favorites going into the year, and we just had a very, very tricky year. For the next year, there was consideration to maybe change the teams because there was just some, some things that didn't seem to be working. But in the end, I said, okay, well, yes, it, it's a bad year. They're still one of the strongest teams on the grid. One bad year is not, you know, if... If they're open to change, if I could help them change certain things, you know, I, I need to improve. Then, you know, changing to a different team is kind of just going to be like a bit of a of a sidestep in a way, unless you go to the championship winning team, which which is not always possible. So, we stuck it out, and we we made a lot of changes, uh, not with team members or anything. It was it was the same team, but just a kind of different philosophy, different approach to working. And in 2017, we had an, an extremely strong year with Roland as my teammates. I equaled the amount of podiums of Leclerc that year who won, but he just won a few more races. <laughs> but it was a very, very strong year. And uh, yeah, then it just it just made sense to, to stay with them, obviously. To continue building. To continue. And you know, I think the continuity was great, especially in a series like Formula 2 where you don't get a lot of track time. Obviously, the continuity itself kind of got broken when they changed the car for 2018, which then changed a lot of things for, for many different reasons and, and I really and that's probably a reason not to change teams actually it, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah exactly I mean yeah, yes and no I mean when you change the car obviously you, you and if you stay with the same team you kind of keep one quantity the same but to a certain point as well I think that's also one of the issues why I struggled so much in in 2018 adapting to that new car was because I was so happy with where we ended off in 2017 you know the way the car was the, the, you know how we set up the car how I drove the car and then everything just got flipped on its head for 2018 with the new car. I couldn't drive it the, the way it needed to be driven. At least in, in the beginning, I was really struggling. Everything setup-wise kind of went out the window of what we learned last year. So in reality, I, at one point, I was kind of like, well, it probably would have been better if I was a rookie just you know, showing up in 2018 because all my experience from the past two years has kind of uh, proven me useless, unfortunately. <laughs> now, look, I've got another question uh, about your junior career. I want to go even further back to 2013 because you did the Toyota racing series in New Zealand. I've always wanted to know what that's like just as a championship and as a young guy going to New Zealand. 
what do you get up to between the races and how much fun do you have really yeah i mean it was a very cool experience i mean i'd only been racing in europe one year at that time that in 2012 was my first year racing cars overseas i knew i was going to be doing the um fia formula 3 european championship in the 2013 season and it was kind of seen as at the time and i think still is kind of one of the uh, the best preparations for junior drivers in the winter to drive something to race something and not just you know driving go-karts or you know doing the odd club race here you know it's a proper championship and cars are obviously not as fast as the cars we were racing but the competition was still very strong because i don't know maybe seven or eight drivers that ended up racing in the form of the three series that same year that i was racing against were doing it and a lot of the top drivers as well so yeah it was very cool it was uh, a month i think a month away in new zealand i mean i was still obviously very very young, one of the first proper years where I was consistently away from home because my first year in 2012, I was still going back and forth between every race. Basically, it was only eight weekends, but it was, you know, Europe, Canada, every race, unless it was a, <laughs> a back-to-back. Whereas this kind of was like, okay, going away to New Zealand for a month and then kind of straight over to Europe and was, was over there full-time. So it was a bit of a start of a leaving home send-off, <laughs> if you will. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was cool. It was a beautiful country, depending on where you were in between the races, lots to get up to, you know, luging down some some ski hills, some, some cool lakes, mountain biking. I mean, just hanging out with some of the other drivers. It was, uh, I mean, everyone was kind of out there for the whole month. So just a bit of a camaraderie. Yeah. Camaraderie. Camaraderie. Yeah. That's the one. It's kind of, I'm thinking Tasman series yeah. from back in the day when a lot of the European drivers went over and all I see, I see as many pictures of them on the beach and having a great time as I do of them actually driving racing cars. Cool, what a great experience. Yeah. Um, how, how tough was it then? Let's talk about leaving home and making that move to Europe. What were you, age 17, something like that? Um, yeah, around 17. How tough was it to go and live in Europe thousands of miles away from your family? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely tough, something that, even at points now, I mean, I still find difficult. I mean, I did most of my racing over in North America. I was starting karting at 13 years old for me, which was you know, quite a late start. I did maybe, to be honest, I don't know the exact number, but I could count on both hands probably how many races I did outside of North America in my, in my karting career. So not very many at all. Obviously, you know, the goal was to try and make it to Formula One. And to do that, I knew I had to go over to Europe to race. You know, maybe I can. Can I stop you right yeah. there? The goal was Formula One. Yet North America, there's a there's a great following for IndyCar and other forms of open wheel racing. Where did the passion for Formula One come from? Because there's even an IndyCar race, or there was in Toronto, yes, your home city. So, why Formula One? I, I guess at the time, you know, prior to getting into karting itself. You know, we always used to go to the Formula One race in, in Montreal. And I mean, to be honest, even when I started karting, I didn't really have an intention or an ambition to make it a career and get to Formula One. It was only, you know, a few, after a few years, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is great. This would be cool to try and pursue as a career. And I don't know, Formula One just, it seemed at the time, and it obviously is, you know, the, the most prestigious racing series in the world. I mean, that's kind of what I watched on TV. That's what seemed cool <laughs> but are there other members of your family who are into racing or was it a new thing that came from you and you were pestering your parents to say this is what i want to do yeah no uh, definitely uh unconventional because my family was was not uh, a motor racing family no motor racing background M- my dad occasionally was some of uh, my uncles did 
the odd track day here and here because they had a passion for cars, but they never raced. It was just, you know, a track day and try not uh, to bend a, it. A, a GT car, just just <laughs> gentlemen driving. But again, none of them ever raced. Um, and I just happened to, on a summer with some of my cousins, uh, brother, some of my other family members, went to a karting track just as, you know, a day out in the summer, and uh, drove the arrive and drive carts. I liked it. I enjoyed it quite a lot. They they were actually driving some some faster carts, uh, but I wasn't allowed to because I was too young. I think at this point I was I was twelve. This is the first time I ever tried a, a go kart. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And basically, when when I went back home because this was in in Montreal, uh, I was living in uh, Toronto. I told my dad I just wanted to find a place near near home to to start karting just for fun indoor on the weekends. Uh, it was kind of a, um, a family bonding thing. Me, my dad, and my older brother started doing every weekend. Uh, so dad would race with you? He, he, would, he would drive. <laughs> race, no, but uh, it's, it's funny because he, he loved the, the driving, but he would tend to get uh, motion sickness very easy, so he wouldn't be able to drive that, uh, too much. <laughs> I remember even sometimes he's, uh, when he's tried certain simulators or whatever, he's, he's, he's gotten uh, motion sickness. To be fair, the first time I drove a proper simulator, I mean, I was, I was white like a ghost. Uh, yeah. I, and, I mean, even now, I still get motion sickness if I, like, I can't go on roller coasters. I say I can't. I haven't been on one in many, many years because the last time I, I would go on one, I would get quite sick. <laughs> so I could drive a Formula 1 racing car on the track, but don't go on a roller coaster or, or I'm going to throw up. <laughs> so it was just a family thing that you yeah, do? Yeah, exactly. Then... And then uh, I had to be convinced to start racing, actually, <laughs> which is a uh, very funny way to explain it. But yeah, we found the place. Basically, the connection came about because the instructor for those track days my dad was doing, he happened to own a karting track 40 minutes from, from where I lived near Toronto. So yeah, we started going there. He was obviously driver coaching people at the time. He had worked with some some other drivers, and within it's the cheesy way to say it, but this is the truth of, of how it went down. First kind of laps, I was going around, and he saw some talent in me for someone who had literally never driven a go kart before, or really driven anything before, and he convinced me and my parents to, to try racing. And initially, <laughs> I said no, I don't want to. <laughs> uh, I'm happy just coming here, you know, on the weekends just for fun. No intention to want, of wanting to race, but then, you know, he kind of kept pushing. He's like, "No, I think you can be good. I think you you, you have." Something I think we special. need to name this person. Can you remember his name? Yeah, he's uh, <laughs> he's, he's still around. <laughs> can we name him yeah. or not? Uh, he probably wouldn't want to be named. Oh, okay. But uh, anyway, he, good job. Yeah, whatever your name he's, is. Uh, well done for persuading. Yeah, Nick I, I don't want naming him, but I know he wouldn't want to be named. But okay. they, but he, he's still with me to this day, basically. So he's the one who convinced me to start racing. He's the one who who coached me. I, I still work with him, not so much as a you know pure driver coach, but more as like a as like a mentor. You know, someone I kind of bounce we bounce ideas. Off each other, he you know he offers his opinion on, on things like that. So um, yeah, really close person for me, and kind of like almost like a you know member of of my family, really. So yeah, he convinced me to start racing. I said no, not interested. Probably on the third or fourth time of him, maybe like a few weeks apart. My parents were like, "Well, you could try it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to uh, continue with it." And obviously, I tried it like a proper, well, I say a proper karting race. It was a four-stroke race, so not, not like a two-stroke engine or anything. But at the time, it was much quicker than what I was doing in, on indoor karting. And, uh, and I loved it. I, I was hooked. I still remember my, my first race. It, was, it wasn't like a normal karting race. It was like an endurance kind of, I think it was like an endurance kind of charity race. But it was still like a lot of proper people who I was racing against were there. And uh, it was an endurance, like 45-minute race. 
it rained in the race, but we all just stayed on slicks. And I think I spun off like six, seven times. I still finished like sixth, sixth place or something like that. There was like 20 people. So I was hooked after that. And then I just kind of stuck with it. And uh, yeah. Did you race Lance Stroll during those early years? So Lance and I have in karting. Man, I know you're older yeah, than Yeah. So, so that's the thing. We have only raced against each other in karting two or three races. We've been at a lot of the same races. In, in the same paddock but because of the age difference he was obviously always in the the category that was kind of right below my my age range and so we overlapped for for two or three races and not more than that yeah and how dedicated a formula one fan were you back then would you living in toronto i don't know what the time difference is to the uk what is it eight hours uh, five hours five hours would you get up in the middle of the night to watch so pr- practice pr- prior to me racing? Yeah, uh, not very dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> because again, it, it was you know went to see the Canadian Grand Prix. That was cool. Maybe uh, I mean to be honest, I can't remember prior to me starting karting if I even watched any Grand Prix on the TV besides the one that I would go to in uh, in real life. But then once I started racing, obviously starting to become much more interested in it. Then I think, yeah, when I could, I was I was trying to watch the races. Mm-hmm. And then going back to um, homesickness and you being in Europe, and the, did the family stay in its entirety in Canada or did some, did mom or dad travel with you no uh, so they all stayed uh, in canada off you go son yeah so <laughs> as, as many races as they as they could my my parents have, have always tried to come over to europe to the races which is great which was you know amazing and now it's so in COVID, it's more difficult but you know even up to my last years in formula two they wouldn't be able to come to all of them but as as many as they could and if not both of them my dad would try to come but obviously him with you know, his very busy man with with work and you know he'd often fly on a on a thursday night arrive friday morning you know jet lag come to the race on the weekend fly back sunday night straight back to work first thing monday morning and so it's it obviously very difficult for them and a very big sacrifice for them plus i mean i have three other siblings as well one one older brother and two two younger siblings so the younger siblings at the time i was starting were were young when they indeed you know family figures around <laughs> parent figures around so it was also always trying to balance that okay we want to come and watch you support you but we can't also keep leaving your siblings at, at home alone. My older brother probably didn't mind that because house, house home alone, house, yeah. have some friends over. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he for sure didn't mind, but uh, the two younger ones uh, probably didn't realize it at the time, but you know, their parents were traveling around a lot. But yeah, I mean, the homesickness and, and that kind of whole theme in general, I mean, you know, naturally traveling and spending so much time away from home in the beginning, it was, it was for sure a, a bit difficult. I mean, you know, there are people that in racing that can relate to that. You know, you have a guy probably like Daniel Ricciardo, whose whose home is even further away than mine. But Daniel has openly admitted this year that he's really struggled with not getting back to Australia yeah. since pre-pandemic. It's the same with me. I haven't been back to Canada. Have you struggled since... with it as much as him? I mean, it's it's not been nice. I mean, yeah, towards the end of my junior career, the amount of time I was able to spend going back home was already starting to become less and less, which is understandable. But since June of, of last year, I haven't been back to Canada for various reasons, but the biggest one is COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah, quite complicated and, and a bit tricky to, to do that. And obviously not having very big time slots in the schedule to be able to do that. So yeah, it, it's not ideal. It, it's the longest I've ever been been away from home. I mean, even though I I base myself in London, just like I guess Daniel bases himself, I think, in, in Monaco. So you kind of make your home there. But, you know, not being able to go back, see your, uh, the rest of your family, friends, it's, uh, yeah, it's it, it's not ideal. And 
you know, kind of like I was saying, there's only probably a few people that race over in Europe, not not just in Formula One, other categories. You know, it's a lot of Brazilians that come over. There's a few Americans that are that are over here. Not very many Canadians anymore, unfortunately. But it, it's the, the European drivers don't realize how how good they they have it. Let's say when at the end of a race weekend, you could just fly an hour and a half, two hours home. <laughs> but it is is London home now? Does it? Do you feel? Have you got lots of mates in town? Um, and, I mean, it pretty much is 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 home now. I mean. I'm, uh, I'm living with my my girlfriend there, so uh, I've, I've been there for about, well, basically since 2015, full time in London, since 2014 in in the UK in general. But that's obviously still with you know the odd back and forth here and there to uh, to, to visit home. Obviously, when you when you when your home is an hour flight away, an hour and a half flight away, you could go see mom and dad, or go see your friends, or just sleep in what is your own bed. Yeah, you you obviously can't compare that to. Uh, having to fly halfway across the world or uh, in the ocean and just not having that, that luxury to be able to do that. So, but it's part of the sacrifice that we all, I knew I had to make and was, was happy to make it, even though it's, if it's still, you know, tricky to deal with at times, even now being a 26 year old, it's still be nice to have gone back to Canada more so than I have in the past. Are you, are you a decent cook? Uh, I'm I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of you age 17. Uh, I'm a decent cook on a different continent. Off you go, son. Is this where the, or is this where the, the, the love of Nutella came from? Yeah. Just was it just Nutella <laughs> toasties? Morning, noon, and night. into the jar. No, <laughs> uh, I'm a, a decent cook at breakfast things. So breakfast foods, which just happen to be, be my favorite foods as well. So, go on. What's eggs, a typical breakfast then? Okay. Well, my, my a typical breakfast I would I would say for me is you know one of two things. It's either just kind of scrambled eggs, toast with avocado, maybe some peanut butter as well, or just a bowl of yogurt berries muesli which is doesn't really require much cooking more just taking things out of the fridge but i'm very handy i'm making crepes with nutella and maple syrup i made some french toast the other weekend which this craving just came out of nowhere because i hadn't made french toast since i was a kid but i i still i still got it it was very good my girlfriend approved but lunch and dinner stuff once i moved to london thankfully there's things like uh, uber eats and Deliveroo. <laughs> <laughs> You did mention your dad, as you said, very busy man, very successful man. Has there ever been any pressure from him to go and get involved in the business? Where is he with that? No, I would definitely say there was never never any pressure from that. Before racing, that was my intention, and that's what I thought I was going to be doing. Again, even in my first or second year in karting, when I still wasn't sure if you know racing was what I was going to pursue as a, as a career path. I, mean, I was still in school at the time, and I was, you know, in, in high school, not uh, not university. You know, I was taking courses kind of oriented to go study business at university. That was my goal. I was very interested in, in that, and I, and, I, and I did enjoy that. And I probably would have joined the, the family business. But, yeah, when I started racing, he was extremely supportive. There was no pressure, like, no, I don't want you to do this. You need to come work <laughs> work with me. And it's been the same with, with all, of, all of my siblings. Um, you know, my older brother, he'd worked with my dad initially, you know, out of school. He kind of went away and, and did some other things, pursued some of his own passions, you know, no pressure to stay or do anything like that. Younger siblings are still yet to go to university, so it's still a bit TBC to, <laughs> to what they're going to do. they are going to go to university, they, they are the gonna man go to I'm university. looking at. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. So <laughs> school was obviously, and, and education was obviously a very important thing in my family, and it was very important to me, and I did finish I did finish my high school, which I guess is like the equivalent of finishing A-levels in the UK or something like that. So it's like what you do before university which is more than a lot of drivers have, 
<laughs> have done. <laughs> I know that for a fact. Uh, and it was very difficult to finish. You know, I, I finished the last year and a half of my, my schooling online just because I was trying to travel too much. I did finish it. And the kind of deal I had with, with my parents was that if, you know, racing for whatever reason didn't work out, I would go back to university. Does that still apply now? You're in Formula One? Or is um, university never going to happen? Well, I guess never say never. I mean, you could, you could go to university when you're 40 or 50 years old if you want. But uh, I don't what know. What you need is an honorary degree. Yeah. That's what you need. I mean, I hope to be a Christian Horn has got one. Toto Wolff's got one. For many, many years. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Never say never. But let's just hope that if that comes up, it's many, many years down yeah. the line. Well, it's been so brilliant to chat to you. I know that you've got a load of stuff you need to go and do. So thank you for your time. I've got one last question. Yep. Which is, what are the older generation in Hungary, Alonso's 40th birthday, etc. What are the older generation like with you, the younger generation, someone like Alonso? Um, I think um, you did a helmet swap with. Yeah, we did a helmet swap with Alonso. I think he's done a a helmet swap with with everybody on the grid. Uh, That's something very cool. He does definitely a very cool souvenir to keep. Yeah, I mean, from the interactions I've had with, you know, Alonso, Lewis. Obviously, I think it goes without saying, Kimmy's a bit quieter <laughs> to himself. But no, I mean, obviously very approachable. They're, they're very welcoming. You know, it's not that they're they're, they're uh, throwing out advice like do this, do this, do this. But, you know, you feel like you could talk to them just like, you know, you're, you're a competitor. Just there's obviously a massive age difference. Prior to Formula One, you're most of the time racing against people that are your age. So it is a bit different than when you're racing against people who are that much more experienced but equally someone like fernando or vettel or lewis hamilton vettel, i forgot about vettel yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i mean those were guys that what were they were they heroes of yours when you were watching um, or, or not watching i can't remember where yeah. we left that bit of the conversation yeah I, I mean definitely guys like alonso and, and and hamilton were guys i had looked up to definitely didn't idolize them but they were guys that i looked up to when i started really getting into it and started racing just for like, various reasons for their own individual achievements and then yeah obviously even a guy like Vettel goes without saying as well four-time world champion so yeah it's very cool to start sharing the track with them when I started first doing FP1s and ultimately you know let the uh, race drivers so yeah because I always said you know probably over half the grid I'd raced against many many times over various years so it's like well it's just in a different car now (laughs) all these young drivers I've raced against before but then you have the other half, which are the very much more experienced ones, more established ones, world champions. And yeah, that was very cool. Well, look, best of luck with everything that comes your way. Thank you. Thank you for your time and speak to you very soon. No Thank worries. you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. What a wonderful chat. I told you Nicky's an engaging guy and he really delivered. I came away from an hour sat with him, really appreciating two things. First, his passion for the sport, and second, his racing brain. How he navigated his way through the junior formulas when he had no family members to guide him was really interesting. And the reasons for his loyalty to dams in Formula 2 were a prime example of that. And how he works with the people around him now in order to maximise his chances in Formula One is the mark of a guy with maturity well beyond his 26 years. Nicky, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and I wish you every success in the second half of the season. Until then, enjoy the break. And before we move on, 
Don't forget to send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Nicky. Were you at the Hungara Ring last weekend to witness him getting his first points? Well, let me know and remember... I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Daniele Audetto after last week's show. A lot of you got in touch to say how much you enjoyed that episode and Daniele certainly had some good stories to tell, didn't he? Anil Bedi got in touch with this. Daniele Aldetto was incredible. Every word he said was so fascinating that I now have to listen to the whole episode again. Well, Anil, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I do agree with you. He shone new light on mid-70s Formula One. And Otto Breischfurt got in touch with this. I've listened to all of the Beyond the Grid episodes and this one was the best. The storytelling and the opportunity to learn about what happened behind the scenes at Ferrari at the Nürburgring in 76 and during Nicky's recovery was incredible. Thank you for making Formula One even more fun. Well, Otto, you are a very loyal listener and that's great to hear. And thanks for your thoughts on the episode with Daniele as well. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Daniele is a great guy who shed lots of light on that weekend at the Nürburgring 45 years ago. And let's do two more. Uh, How about this one from Ashley Woodhouse? I could have listened to Daniele for hours, says Ashley. His stories about Mr. Ferrari were hilarious. Well, Thanks, Ashley, for getting in touch. I, too, loved his tales about Enzo. And if I had a time machine and could speak to anyone from Formula One history on Beyond the Grid, Mr. Ferrari would be my choice. What a legend. And finally, this from Alexis Ferraris. What a podcast with Daniele Audetto. Scoop after scoop. He fired up my imagination with his fantastic storytelling. Thank you, Tom. No, thank you, Alexis, for getting in touch. It was great to hear that you enjoyed the episode so much. Now, lots of you got in touch, but we'll have to leave it there. So thank you to everybody who sent messages in. And that's it, guys, for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Nicholas. And remember to send in your thoughts and stories on him. And as ever, I'll be back in just seven sleeps with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.